Hey everybody, and welcome to That Will Never Work. This week on the show, I'm with Katie Groves. She's the co-founder of a company called Studio 882, an innovative interior design business and furniture showroom out of Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. What's interesting is that it's a business that's grounded in brick and mortar, but it's using data and technology in a whole new way to gain an edge over the competition. But how do creative folks like interior designers react to being told to drive design using data? And how does airport security level facial recognition software have a home in a furniture showroom? When it comes to interiors, don't people just want to touch and feel and sit? Well, that's what we're here to find out. Hi, I'm Mark Randolph, co-founder of Netflix and six other companies. Over the years, I've heard that will never work thousands of times, but I've learned there are things we all can do to increase the chances that they will. So join me for That Will Never Work. Katie, welcome to That Will Never Work. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. It's such a privilege to be able to speak with you. Oh, I'm glad to have you. So did I get that right? You have a bricks and mortar furniture business. Is that you correct? You did. You nailed it. We are a data-backed <laughs> interior design and custom furniture retail showroom. And so, so where is this and how big is this? And give me a sense of the scale and what you've actually uh, got yeah, going on Yeah, so here. we are just outside of Philadelphia in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. And we opened in 2013 in a about a 3,500 square foot showroom. In 2016, we expanded. Our showroom is now about 15,000 square feet. So we've been operating since 2013. We've done over 26 million in sales and Part of our success has been on developing a proprietary data monitoring system that helps us understand our customer behavior and preferences on both the online and in the physical retail showroom. So what's happened to your online business over the uh, the last bunch of years since you launched? Are you still dominantly uh, people coming in, sitting on the couch, pulling themselves up to the kitchen table? Predominantly, although we have worked with customers across the country and in multiple different countries as far away as Australia and Asia. So we are able to work on a national and international scale as well. A lot of customers do find us online. Many do come into the showroom. I think when you're dealing with custom furniture and interior design services, one of the things that we've found is that with things like Instagram and Pinterest and House, there's so much design inspiration at everyone's fingertips. But then where do you go to actually access and see and touch and feel these products and get the design services to help you pull it all together in your home? You're right. There's a whole bunch of barriers here which make this business reluctant to go fully digital. I mean, I know myself, I would never want to buy a couch Mm -hmm. that I hadn't sat in. Right. I mean, it's something is it's listen, sure, I can get a reasonable sense how it's going to look online. But unless you're uh, you're one of those people who don't care what they feel like, it's all about the image. um, you got to sit in it. I mean, I finally, I guess, have gotten over the hump that I'm willing to buy a mattress online. Yeah. But that's because they counter with this fact. So we'll take it back if we don't. You don't. Right. 
So are you finding that you're able to resist that this is something that's kind of here to stay and that the idea is to build a world where you have both? Correct. So there's always going to be some level of wanting to see, like you said, and experience the products in person. One of the things that we found with this level of custom furniture is they're typically not shown or sold in you know showrooms across the country it's not like you can be in uh, seattle and have easy access to seeing these products in person typically they're only available to the interior design trade and they're largely only available in large design centers in major cities like new york or washington dc so it's rare to have a city or a showroom with access to these products and that combines them across all different styles in one showroom. And who's the customer? Is it the person who actually is going in their house or is it the interior designer? We work with both. All of our design staff is interior designers by trade. So we work as both interior designers and retailers to our customers. Kind of bring the best of both worlds. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned you sell to people in Hong Kong and all over the mm -hmm. world. How does that work? Are they doing it sight unseen? Are they doing it by... They are. Remotely? They are doing it sight unseen. So certain there are certain categories of products and there are certain customers that maybe do have experience with custom luxury furniture before and feel more comfortable buying that online. Through our, you know, our website and our digital efforts, we're able to reach those customers, you know, leveraging things like SEO value, things like that. And then for the customers who want to work with us as interior designers, who are remote, we also do photorealistic rendering. So we're able to really let them shop with confidence, being able to see what the products will look like in their homes. So that leveraging that type of technology has helped us, you know, work with people on an online solely scale. But then in the showroom, we've been using data to make sure that, you know, since there is a need for a brick and mortar, operation that we're running it in the most effective and efficient way possible. So I assume you're talking about things beyond inventory management, right. uh, which is kind of the basic data usage um, in a bricks and mortar. So tell me some of the things you're doing, which have really, you think are kind of innovative and of really leading to uh, what's been working. Yeah. For you. Like you mentioned, um, you know, when it comes to understanding customer behavior and preferences, in the showroom in a physical retail space. One of the things that frustrated us early on was that there wasn't a lot of good data collection systems in place. You know, we wanted to move beyond just counting traffic um, and the times of day that people were coming in the store and things like that. So we wanted to get a better sense of how people were moving through the showroom, what displays and products they were interacting with so that we could understand and make the best use of our square footage. So we actually brought in um, a kind of a traffic flow and dwell time monitoring technology that's used in airports by air traffic controllers to make sure planes don't crash into each other. It gives us a complete map of where customers are walking throughout the showroom and what products they are stopping and spending time at and how long they're spending the time. So if we see that displays aren't getting much attention, we can quickly adapt, move things around so we can understand if it's the physical location of the display and not the products themselves, or if it's the product itself that's not getting getting love. And so we're able to kind of test and adapt to what our showroom is displaying to maximize the experience 
for our customers and then also maximize our sales per square footage. So, Katie, I mean, talking about airport uh, level software, I mean, do you, do you use facial recognition? You know, basically, can you identify individuals when they come into the we store? We do. Yeah, we have cameras that identify each customer as they come in the store and we compare them with the um, with the salesperson who is working with them. Um, we also, you know, have some things with, with COVID and mask mandates and things like that, but that can also see facially within the within the showroom as well as people move about. Fantastic. And do, do, are customers aware of this when they come in or is this something that is kind of like magic when someone comes up to them and greets them by it's name? It's a little bit of magic, um, but it helps yeah. personalize the experience within the store. You know, I remember this dates me. But back when caller ID was just a brand new thing, and I w we used a call center for one of my mail order businesses, and you would we, the software would identify who was calling, pull up their record, their name, where they were from, what they'd ordered before, and you could just jump right in and say, well, Mrs. Jones, is there a problem with the widget? And the funny thing is 99% of the time they wouldn't even notice. They would just react that, oh, I don't know how they know me, but it was really interesting. It, it, it was not as intrusive as people may believe. And I know right. there's security issues and privacy issues, which will be yet one more thing for you to navigate going forward. God, this is fascinating. So how often do you sit and review this information? Pretty often. Um, we marry it up. We also have a developed our own in-house ERP system, which layers in what's going on in the showroom with different sales data, what we're quoting, what we're selling, all of that stuff. So for example, you know, just a, a few weeks ago, we brought in a new upholstery manufacturer and, you know, started them out with smaller testing on the showroom floor, just a few, you know, lounge chairs, things like that. And we're looking at the sales data and found that they had become our best selling sectional brand, which was great news for us because the sectional price point was a little bit higher than what we had been doing before. And we were curious, you know, how this was happening. Uh, we were selling sectionals without a sectional on display, which is contrary to what a lot of retailers would think that you need. We found that we had the lounge chairs displayed with a different company sectional. So we would see, you know, a husband and wife come into the showroom, sit in this display. The wife would sit on the sectional, the husband in the chair, and then they'd switch. And the husband would move from the chair to the sectional and say, Oh, this sectional is comfortable, but that lounge chair was much more comfortable. Does that come in a sectional? So we were able to see that we can sell sectionals off of just one lounge chair. So our inventory investment is different <laughs> being able to use this data and this data trafficking system. So just being a data geek myself, I would be saying, well, maybe you should always put an uncomfortable piece of furniture next to a piece of furniture to make it seem more comfortable than it actually is. And then if you have two pieces that are equally comfortable, you get into this paralysis about, I have no idea which of these I like better, and you walk out without anything. Right. And some of this data has been really interesting because we've found certain brands sell together better than other brand combinations do. So it's been a lot of, you know, testing and being able to really quickly adapt using data. And that's one of the things that we love about it. I think sometimes people think about data as something that's very you know technical and sterile, but it's really been a lot of fun to be able to see how impactful it is. 
I love this. In fact, you know, my, my inclination is just to keep digging deeper and deeper into the data side. Yeah. And I, I, I imagine we will come back to that in just a moment. But I imagine you do feel a lot of price pressure from people who do not have 15,000 square foot warehouses or is that or 150,000 square foot warehouse or whatever. You're, I forgot how big it was. For 15,000 square feet. Yeah. 15,000. You, you must feel a lot of price pressure from people who aren't maintaining that and maintaining the staff. Is that true, or are you able to kind of maintain the high price points because of some service level or because of the data piece of it? We've been able to focus on our niche, our core customer, and using the data have been able to establish some pricing equilibriums. One of the things that we like about our area is that we are in a higher net worth location. So our price points are comfortable to our market. They're also getting free interior design services. Um, so there's a lot of value add that we bring to our clients with our design services, our renderings, and the ability to experience and feel the furniture in person. We do know that there's a significant number of similar demographics throughout the country. So it's not that we are in an incredibly rare location. This is the only you know city that would support it, but we've really focused on this is our core customer being all things to all people and combining a variety of qualities is it, it makes it more confusing for the customer. I think they're, you know, maybe feel like they're coming in expecting, you know, a baker sofa, but then are trading down and then unsatisfied with the quality when it gets in their home. And that's not how we've grown. Let me ask you a different element of the data aspects mm -hmm. of it. So you certainly understand traffic. You certainly understand inventory. Mm -hmm. How well do you understand the customers and what tools you're using to really make sure you know who your customer is? So that is an interesting question that we've been doing. We have a CRM system that we've developed through Zoho and we've put together buyer personas and there's questionnaires and dialogue that goes in to what we do with our clients and that all gets filtered back into the systems. One of the reasons that we wanted to talk with you is that the data and understanding the customers is something that's critically important to us and something that our design team is doing every day in the showroom. How do we continue to capture that and use that and share that across the organization with the rest of our design team? We know there's a lot of, you know, demographic and psychographic information with a client that tells us, you know, where to go in terms of design. And we use that on a regular basis to be able to kind of efficiently and effectively design for our clients. So is the is the hesitancy that they don't think it helps? You know, that, what, what do I need to know about? I, I, I can sell to anybody. Are they creeped out by it? Is there resistance or are you just looking for ways to try and uh, make it stronger? We're looking for ways to make it stronger and make it more natural. I think a lot of times, you know, interior designers, generally speaking, they're creative. And so they are going based upon intuition and trying to use come up with a new way to solve each problem versus layering the data and that creativity and that intuition. I think the, the marriage between both is really important. We run into this mostly, you know, as we're growing, we're hiring new designers, the ones who have been with us for five years. Now the data is almost, you know, it's turned into their mental filing cabinet. And they've seen just in, in working with us how empowering and effective this data is, they're able to serve more clients, are able to have higher success and closure rates. 
easier and faster for them to land on great creative solutions when some of this data is accessible to them. So it's actually empowering. Are they are they on commission? They are. Um, and do you have individualized data for a repeat customer? If somebody walks in, is it like going into a high-end restaurant and you go, oh my God, that's Mr. Randolph. For God's sake, don't sit him near the window. He loves being in the back and he got to bring him a uh, scotch and soda right away. I mean, is it, is, it, is it that level of customer care? It is. And we actually, our average customer buys from us seven times. We do a lot of repeat business with clients and there's a lot, a lot of word of mouth. So when a customer comes in and maybe we've finished their home and they're onto a vacation home or we finished a few rooms and they're onto the next room, we take that learning from that client before and can use that. So I think this is fantastic. I love the fact that you're marrying in some ways two worlds. I mean, a business just been around for thousands of years ever since they were saying uh, this log would look great in your lean to all the way up to to now. Uh, but of course, now there's pressures that you that were not existent right. back uh, two or three thousand years ago, because you do have the pressure from the all online sellers who have just-in-time inventories and have unlimited selection, et cetera. So I love the fact that you're really kind of marrying the two. And of course, I'm a complete data geek, so I love the fact trying to use those tools to solve it. And what if I hear this right, one of the things you're asking is, um, how do I get my entire organization to really drink the Kool-Aid here, to really respect what data can do for our business in a business, which I seem to believe is very much the sense of I'm an artist. I have an intuition about what would look good in this space. What role is there for data in something as subjective as taste? Is that, do I have that, have this right? Exactly. How do we, you know, instill a culture where data isn't seen as something that takes away the creativity or inhibits what they can do for a client, but instead really empowers them to come up with the best solutions and the best end design. So let's, let's talk about this for a second, because I certainly do have a lot of um, opinions about this. The first is that data in and of itself is incredibly confusing. Uh, and you have to pair that with the intelligence to say, how am I using the data to actually drive real decision-making in an effective way? I mean, and we bumped into that just five or 10 minutes ago when I was asking those questions about the couches. You certainly can measure absolutely that, wow, pairing these chairs with this non-brand sectional is selling the branded sectional. Well, that is conclusive data, it's true. But what becomes really interesting is why? And where do we go from here? And in fact, not just where do we go from here, but what insight is this uncovered for us that allows us to learn some incredibly deeper truth about um, human nature? And what I love about applying data to taste is I believe it's completely possible and that you should be prepared to surrender yourself to the data. And I know that sounds like a, a dehumanist, but you have to remember a couple things. One is that I've been in the data world for 40 years. You know, I was a direct marketing guy at the beginning and that's all data-driven marketing. And certainly early startups, very data-driven and especially at Netflix uh, from the very beginning. 
But the other interesting thing, one of the Netflix big experiments was, why do people choose the movies they choose? And do they choose well? And our conclusion was, no, they don't choose well. They're choosing based on these strange things, senses of what I might want, or what haven't I seen before, or what can I find? And I think part of the big Netflix experiment was really saying, can we predict whether you're going to like a movie and you'll come to trust us? And of course, tens of millions of dollars and infinite hours later, I think the answer is yes, that Netflix has become extremely good at being able to guess in advance what movie you're going to like, even if you have never even heard of that movie before, to the point that people trust us. And so I say that to establish I am on your side. I believe that the data can probably predict extremely accurate what furniture you are going to be delighted with, even if you think you have a strong belief of A, this will look good in my house, and B, I will love it afterwards when it's paired with as yet to be determined art, furnishings, floor coverings, paint colors, etc. There's all these factors that are going into whether something looks good. So you're coming, you're, you, I'm a believer. I don't think we've totally nailed it yet, but I know uh, it can be there. But I also know, as I said before, that collecting data raises all these questions. And the real tricky thing is to build this framework so that you're using the data in these appropriate ways. Okay, that's kind of my intro piece. Data-driven decision-making, in my opinion, is basically defined as a lot less of I think and a lot more of the data shows, and that as you're measuring your progression to a true data-driven decision-making culture, that's what you're listening for. Every time that someone is in a situation where a decision is being made, and this could be a decision about which inventory do we carry, it could be where do we display it, it could be in what order do we display it, what customers do we show it to, all those things, to the point you're listening and hearing, I think, the less you hear of that and the more you're hearing of, well, the data shows that, the better. Obviously, they may not be those exact words, but that's what you're aiming for and you're making progress toward. The other piece is that you're intersecting this with basic culture. Um, and I've certainly talked about this a lot before, but my firm belief is that culture is observational, not aspirational, that this is not what you want to be the culture. That helps. And telling people this is the culture and pushing that to be the culture, eh, what really makes a difference is how you behave, how you model the culture that you want the rest of your organization to adopt. And people cannot take a culture off of you unless they see what you're doing. And so rule number one is being dramatically visible as you go through the process of the data shows versus I believe, and especially being in the position you are, one of the co-founders, leaders of the organization, it's very easy to say, here's what we're doing. And then you leave it somewhat open as to, is that because she's the boss? Is that because she has all these years of experience? Is that because she has an intuitive sense we should do that? 
or is it because she has this access to deeper understanding based on the data? So because it's observational, unless you show people how you're making decisions, they are not going to adopt it for themselves. And now the advanced technique for modeling culture, in my opinion, is that culture is like erosion in that 99% of the progress takes place in about 1% of the time. And there are certain things that you're going to do which are going to speak extremely loudly. And the classic ones are who you fire, uh, <laughs> who you promote, mm -hmm. and who you reward. And those may not necessarily all be applicable, but certainly the who you reward one is a big, big, big piece of this, especially in a, a commission-based environment. So let's talk first of all about the visibility piece of how you make this visible. And you may in fact do all these things extremely well, and in which case then you know it, but anyone else listening may not quite get it the same way. For example, in these meetings is you spending the time not just revealing what data drove a decision, but here's the critical thing, is saying, what are we trying to find out in this next phase? So for example, and I'll pick a crazy example, and I don't know anything about the furniture business, so take this for what it's worth as an example. But we're in this scenario, and all of a sudden you come up with the data that shows that when you have these comfortable chairs paired with this different company's sectionals, it ends up selling the non-displayed sectionals. What happens next is critical, which is what conclusion have you drawn from that besides the fact that one sells better than the other? Because that is what the data-driven decision-making piece is. It's taking this data and saying, this has given us the tool to explore our curiosity. Now we go to the really interesting stuff, which is why did it happen? And how do I use that? And using this as an object lesson for everyone else, by saying, for example, let's all sit down, let's talk for a few minutes. What do you think's going on here? Why do you think it's happening the way it's happening? What are some of the ways we could run an experiment to find out why what happened happened, to gain a deeper understanding, to inform ourselves, to use this insight as the next step? And once you engage people in brainstorming what the idea is, the critical thing is not passing any judgment on those opinions, even though you have judgments on those opinions. Then it's saying, okay, what kind of tests can we run which will allow us to see which of these things in fact is happening? What data are we going to look at after the fact that will tell us that? So it's, let's say, again, I'm using an example, so you'll have to suspend your, your knowledge of the reality of the situation. You might go, gosh, I wonder if it's what Mark's theory was, which is that the more uncomfortable a sectional you put, the better the other one sells. Well, that experiment be, let's run an experiment. We put a crap, an even crappier section. Let's put a wooden bench next to it and see what happens. It's not just, this next step is, here's some tests we could run. But then the big piece is, let's decide in advance what is going to be the proof that tells us which one won or not. In other words, by deciding in advance what the data is going to be that tells you the conclusion, it frames it all as, we're going to make this decision using data. We're not going to use it by, well, if it's all opinions, my opinion counts more for anybody else. 
We're not going to do it based on which of the people in that little group you brought together as not just help make decision, but again, you're using this as an evidence of building culture around data, is not who has the loudest opinion, who's the most outspoken. You're making sure that everybody gets a chance to participate, but also make it clear that we're going to make this ultimate decision about how we merchandise this in three weeks based on X. Now, how are we going to capture X? Let's begin brainstorming how, once we've captured that data, it might be misleading. In other words, you understand how to do these things. And part of it is stripping out the I think, I believe, and stripping out anybody else's opinion to say I think, I believe. It's one of the things Netflix does exceptionally well. In a meeting, almost never is it an argument about people's opinion. There is very, very vocal disagreement, but it's about what the data actually shows, not about what my opinion is. And then once you get into this realization of you, what the data shows may inform two different things, you get into this fascinating discussion about, well, what can we do? What data can we now collect that will make it clear which was the right one? That's a simplistic role, but again, I can't emphasize enough. If you really want to get your entire organization making decisions based on the data, it starts with you, and it starts with how you make decisions. But then again, no one's going to know what the hell's going on if you're making decisions in a vacuum. You have to make them in a way that everyone sees the wheels spinning in your head so that they begin to spin those same wheels. There's a classic, you see, now you got me in a role. Whenever I talk about data, you get me going here. It's great. We knew you were the one to talk to about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the classic one, this is not a data one, but when I said before, the big signals for culture is, you know, who you hire, who you fire, and who you reward. So someone goes, ah, oh, this person, they're just, they're making decisions that are not contrary to our values. This is not culture who we want. I have to get rid of this person. And then the person's gone, and then everyone goes, what happened to that person? And you go, oh, they decided to spend more time with their family. Or they're working on new projects. I mean, some bullshit to spare the person's feelings or out of some misguided sense that, oh, no, out of respect, I don't want to say they f***ed up. No, you've got to get everyone in the room and go, let me explain exactly why Katie's no longer here. Because nothing sends a message about what you truly value than the fact that this person's no longer here. It was so strongly anti-culture what you wanted, you had to fire them. But if no one knows that, you've missed this incredible opportunity. And there's going to be situations on the data-driven decision-making aspect for the exact same thing, where you're going to be getting up at the end of the month, as you maybe do, and you talk about how the month went. And you go, let's take a few minutes, and I'd like to reward a few people, recognize a few people. So if you're bringing up your highest performing salesperson, that sends a message. Mm -hmm. It goes, selling the most is the most important thing. And writ large, yes, of course, that's a critical thing to recognize. But you may want to start factoring in. I just want to point out someone who's tried something new here, which was they were intuitively thinking it was going to be this. But they went back and we reviewed the data and it suggested this might be the one. They tried that approach and it worked. And I think I want to give them a reward. We're giving them X. In other words, you sit, you, they, they were modeling behavior that you want other people to model. And you, sit, you brought it up in front of the whole group and publicly said, this is important to me. I do a lot of keynote speaking. 
you know, and some big company gets me up in front of six or 7,000 people. They have all their salespeople there. They're all their distributors or vendors. And they go, Mark, the theme is disruption. We really want everyone to be thinking about how are they more innovative? How are we taking chances? It's all about risk taking. Oh, but before you speak, let's recognize our highest performing salespeople. And I go, you just totally missed the opportunity to bring up someone who was innovating, who was taking risks and tell the whole world. Anyway, you get the idea. The other thing is, the last piece that I would say, these little trick you can use, is it's kind of like Karate Kid. You want to pick someone scrawny, someone who no one thinks is going to be good, someone who just joined with no interior design experience, and you're going to create a cyborg. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're going to arm this person with all the tools that you know are effective, or in fact, more effective, and you're going to watch that person perform. You got to pick the right person. But believe me, especially in a sales-driven organization, nothing motivates people with, holy shit, that person, they just made a big sale, and they they don't know, they don't have any of my experience. <laughs> it must be the date. Yeah, nothing. exactly. That's a, pretty strong incentive for them to go to come to you afterwards and go what did you say to him anyway or how did, how did how did he do that right um anyway i could go on forever and ever and ever have i come close to kind of touching on some of the things you're struggling with and that might help absolutely it's been very helpful and you do make really great points a lot of times i think the pressures you know as leaders is to talk about the decision the conclusion so to speak the data says this, we've interpreted, here's what it says, here's what we're doing. But I think really engaging the designers with the data on, you know, here's, this is kind of what the raw data is, what what is it telling us, let's hypothesize, let's use the, the data to kind of test further, draw some conclusions, see if we're right. I think as an organization, as a team, and as leaders is showing how to use it, how to think about it, and then how to be creative. And then you, just us looking at the data, I think it's more useful to have you know their eyes on it too. They're you know working with the clients, you know more than sometimes we are as you know leaders. We're you know doing our business management things too, so. It's going to be incredibly helpful to get the whole team around the data at an earlier stage than just here's the conclusion. Here's what we're what we've decided. Absolutely. It's a really important point, which is unless you are Katie, the super genius and you know how to solve every problem better than everyone else. Well, in that case, why do you even need any uh, employees? Right. But if you don't, it's amazing when you when basically you say no. The data is going to make the decision here. And then you never know which person in the room is going to come up with that idea, which is going to transform the business because you've opened it up to this idea is not given its weight based on who had it. The idea is given weight by what the conclusions to the test we're going to run is. And that's a very powerful way of bringing out amazing insights from other people in your organization. Exactly. And you've always talked about how data was really empowering to the teams at Netflix and ended up being something that, you know, answering these creative type of questions in terms of assessing client preferences, but doing it in a a way where the 
use of data felt empowering and impactful. And I think you've just touched on all of that in terms of how we can use data to make it feel interesting and alive for our, our team. And you can use the experience of your people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that right. basically, oh, who cares that you have 20 years of interior design experience? No, but let's begin playing with it. So someone goes, I always, when I'm showing someone a couch, I put the throw pillows on. Right. Or I always show them one with a picture behind it. Great. Let's, A, let's see if that's true or not. Right. Now let's take it further. What type of throw pillow makes a difference? Does it make a difference which piece of art we use? Right. In other words, we can take your insight and explore it further and find out, A, maybe this is a myth, but maybe it's true. And if it's a true, let's take it further. I think it's really cool. It just shows that you can really use data in any business, even the ones that would seem least data intensive. Exactly. It's a useful tool, and this conversation has been very, very helpful. And I think now I'm really energized to go back to the team and review some data. <laughs> Show them the way. Show them the way of the data. Yeah, people think it's dehumanizing, but in fact, it's the opposite. Uh, it, it opens up incredible possibilities, and it, it triggers people's creativity because now... You never know where that amazing idea is going to come from. It could, and as long as you open up that discussion to anybody's ideas could be valid, it makes it a fun place for everyone to be. Absolutely. Well, Katie, good luck with this. Thank you. First of all, I love the progress you've made. I love the fact that you're bringing this data to this thing. I can't wait to hear how the experiment goes. So let's check back, I don't know, six months, a year, and see uh, how you've taken this even further and uh, totally transformed your business to an even even bigger one. But good luck with it. We would love that. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for today. But what an awesome example of using the data shows versus I believe as a way to really bring data-driven decision-making to your organization. If you liked what you heard today, take a minute to subscribe so you don't miss a single weekly episode. If you've got a business problem you're struggling with and would like to join me on the show, simply come to markrandolph.com forward slash guest to apply. And while you're there, add yourself to my mailing list so you're up to date on all my news and entrepreneurial tips. And finally, if a 30-minute podcast is just too much, I share all my hints and tips in more easily digestible nuggets on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and yes, even TikTok. You'll find links to all this stuff, plus my blogs and other writing on markrandolph.com. Check it out. Thanks again for listening and see you all next week. group.